This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Tonight, we're here to see two amazing authors in conversation with each other. Our moderator for the evening is Aminata Forna, whose prose is translated into 18 languages. She's the author of the award-winning novels, The Memory of Love, The Hired Man, and Ancestor Stones. Her latest novel, called Happiness, was published earlier this year. She's also written many essays that can be found in publications such as The Guardian, Vogue Magazine, and Lip Hub. We're thrilled to have her speak to Jasmine Ward this evening. Jasmine Ward is the author of three novels, one memoir, and the editor of the essay collection, The Fire This Time. When I first read her memoir, Men We Reaped, back in 2016, I knew there was something special about her as a writer. She had tapped into emotions that I had no idea that existed. In 2017, when I finally was able to get my hands on Sing and Buried Sing, I became choked up again reading her fiction. The story serves as, as a reminder that the past has a way of catching up to the present. And as she went on to win a MacArthur Genius Award, and later to become the first woman in history to win two National Book Awards, I cheered her on as if I knew her personally. And now I have the pleasure of introducing to you Jasmine Ward. Please give her a warm welcome. the warmest welcome. <laughs> Thanks to, thank you all for being here. Wonderful to see so many of you uh, for Jasmine Ward's conversation about her wonderful book, Sing Unburied Sing. Um, I was, it's an amazing book. Uh, I was asked recently how I, how one can tell uh, the measure of a good book. What makes a book outstanding? What makes a good book? And my answer was, it's a book that stays with you long after you've finished reading it. And this surely is one of those books. Um, I don't think I've read a book in the last 10 years that stayed with me as long as this had. It's had me thinking about your themes, your characters, their conflicts and their courage. Um, and I think it's a remarkable achievement. So we're going to talk about it today. I'm looking forward to it. The book begins with a scene of quite outstanding, well, shocking violence. Um, a little boy, Jojo, and his grandfather, who he calls Pop, go out to slaughter a goat. Um, and you tell the, you recount the scene in Jojo's voice. So we go through all his emotions, his fear, and his hesitation, and his worry that his grandfather will witness that fear which he tries very much to hide just can we can you talk to me about why you chose to start the book in that in that way um 
Let's see. Beginnings are always difficult for me to write, uh, but because I'm, I consider myself a linear writer, so I have to write from the beginning to the end. So before I begin a rough draft of of any of you know of any work, I have to figure out what is the best where's what is the best moment to enter the story. Um, you know what is the moment that will um, sort of First, like, de- like, put that demand on the reader, sort of uh, focus and begin to think about where the story is going and, and what the, what you know, what the major, I guess, concerns of the work might be. Um, and I knew, uh, sort of from the beginning, that death would figure prominently in in seeing unburied sing. So I thought, well, um, I should probably begin with death then. Like, I should probably begin, you know, with the scene where characters are dealing with the death. Um, and that's the moment that I came to. Like, that's the moment, I sort of, that's the moment that, um, you know, that Jojo wanted to enter the story in some respects, right? Um, so that's why I wanted to start with the goat. And it's, an, I think it's an accurate reflection of, of something, of, of an event that's fairly usual where I come from. And I think that surprises some people when I tell them that because they don't expect that. It's quite usual where I come from too. Um, well, part of my family comes from, which is Sarah Leone, less usual in Scotland. Uh, <clears throat> But um, it does bring us powerfully and viscerally into both the story, into the circumstances of these people's lives where that kind of uh, death is a daily occurrence, death of an animal, um, being bloodied as Jojo is. Um, and tell us a little bit about Jojo. Where did he come from? Who is he and where did he come from? Jojo, so normally when I... When I, so I, I cast about for ideas, right? So I, you know, sort of brainstorm and try to figure out, um, you know, what I'm going to work on next. And I like to find my ideas while I'm working on a book, right? So, you know, I'll, I'll, like I was working on Salvage the Bones and I was sort of beginning, I was nearing the end and I thought, okay, I, I need to know what I'm working on next. And so I began to, you know, try to figure out who I wanted to write about next. Because for me, it's all about character, right? So I thought, you know, who, who interests me? Am I going to write about a man? Am I going to write about a woman, a boy or a girl? Like, where am I going next? Um, and what happens is, and it's going to sound a little nutty, but a character appears to me, right? When I'm, whenever I'm doing my brainstorming, right, most of the time it's while I'm driving, a character will appear to me. And there's, and in some ways, whatever, um, I guess I'm, whatever will draw me to that character, that, um, I guess, characteristic is apparent from the very beginning. So let me clarify. When Jojo popped into my head, he was a 13-year-old mixed-race boy growing up in the modern South. And so what drew me to him is 
first of all, the, the fact that he's mixed race, right? So he, he comes from, um, you know, a family, you know, there are black members in his family, there are white members in his family. And because he's 13, he's at this age where he's trying to figure everything out, right? So he's trying to figure out what it means to be a man in America, what it means to be a black man in America, what it means to be a black man in the South, what it means to be a son or a father or a sibling. Like, there's so much that he's wrestling with. But I, I think that he came to me as a mixed race boy because I knew that those, um, those uh, struggles for him, like those, um, these ideas would be the struggle that he was going through, right, and trying to figure all of this out would be a very intimate one with a father, with a grandfather like Pop, with a mother like Leone, with a father like Michael, right, with a grandfather like Big Joseph who won't even acknowledge him. Um, so he is the, you know, he came to me first, and I just, I wanted to stay with him because I wanted to figure out, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to go along on his journey and see what conclusions he came he, you know, he came to. It makes complete sense. It doesn't sound nutty at all. A lot of writers begin with the character. And I'm fascinated by the way your stories overlap, your notion, your, your novel plans overlap. I was talking to a writer not long ago called Monica Ali, who said, I find it very hard not to be thinking about something um, <laughs> all the time, even though you look forward to the end of a book mm -hmm. at the same time, the next book, like, mm -hmm. you know, like aircrafts taking yeah. off, the next one's coming. Um, so there's Jojo and there's Leone, his mother, who is um, a person with a great many personal problems. Mm -hmm. And her husband, Lada, is Michael, mm -hmm. uh, and he is Jojo's father. Um, Michael is white, mm -hmm. and Leone is black, mm -hmm. um, and they have a very difficult relationship, and so Jojo lives with his uh, grandfather and grandmother, um, who he calls uh, Mom and Pop. Mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't call Leone and Michael those, those names. Um, his relationship with Leone was as an extraordinary portrait of a mother-son relationship. I'll just read a couple of bits. Jojo has a little sister called Michaela, who he is becomes mostly responsible for uh, because um, Leone can't cope and Leone has addiction problems. And he says at one point of his mother, talking about his mother, Kayla groans and cries. I don't want Leone giving her that. The mother's making a potion for her. I don't want Leone giving her that. I know that's what she thinks she needs to do, but she ain't ma, she ain't pop. She never healed nothing or grown nothing in her life, and she don't know. And then later on he says... <clears throat> in the same scene, I want to tell her, you don't know what you're doing, and then you ain't mum, but I don't. The worry bubbling up in me like water boiling over the lip of a pot, but the words sticking in my throat, she might hit me. I did a lot of talking when I was younger, when I was eight or nine in public, and then one day she slapped me across my face, and after that, every time I opened my mouth to talk to her, talk against her, she did that, so I stopped. So, Jojo lives in this constant state of fear. Mm -hmm. How, when I read, you know, when I, when I read Jojo's and you inhabit him so perfectly and you give him his own voice, how did you draw that out of yourself? 
Oh, that's a difficult <laughs> um, He was just very present for me. You know, I felt, I think that, um, I always feel very strongly for all my characters. Um, I, in some respects, I think I, I love them. And Jojo, he's just, perhaps because he came to me first and his voice it was so real and so present for me, you know, as I, you know, it feels like he's right here and I can hear him sort of telling me the story and, and it's as if he grabs my hand and sort of brings me along with him, right, in, in, in this world. I think he just, he felt so real for me that I couldn't help but, um, but feel for him when I, when, you know, we ended up in this horrible situations or when, whenever we inhabited these horrible, you know, moments. Um, I mean, I, I think too that unfortunately in the, I come from a really, um, small, um, rural town on the Mississippi Gulf Coast and it, it, my, my community is black, um, poor, working class, right? Um, and the people who live there have been basically the families that live there have been living in poverty for generations, right? And unfortunately, um, there's a lot of there's, there's a lot of dysfunction, I think, um, in in my community, um, in my family, in other families, and so I think you know throughout my life, you know, I write about the kind of people that I live with, the kind of people, you know, that live in my community. I've seen that, you know, and it's, and, and it's not, it's, and it breaks your heart. You know, it's very easy, I think, to, um, to empathize, right, with children, um, you know, who you see, uh, you know, or are made to bear burdens that they shouldn't have to, have to bear. Um, and so I think that I associated Jojo, you know, with, with so many children that I've known throughout my life who have been in similar, who have lived through similar situations. So it's kind of crucial, really, that he's 13. He, he hasn't lost his, he hasn't lost his sense of hope. He hasn't lost his affection, his capacity for love. Now, the most dysfunctional person in, in Jojo's life is Leone his mother, and we're, we are led along by, um, by Jojo in the first pages of the book. And then, uh, to my surprise, um, and, um, well, yes, to my, to my surprise, uh, along comes Leone's voice. So we hear, uh, we hear the story from Leone's point of view. And I thought that was really a, a daring and remarkable achievement because Leone is a woman who is violent, she is drug addicted, she has neglected her children, she would be so easy to demonize. Could you read for us a little bit about from Leone? Uh, it's page 146. Okay. Um, so in this section, she's, um, she's giving the kids a bath, reluctantly. St. Teresa, I mutter, Oya, I say, and rinse Michaela, dumping a cup of water over her head. She wails. I wrap a towel around her that soaks at the bottom, turns heavy with water, before picking her up and lifting her out of the tub. She kicks. I want to hit her. 
Don't make me feel this for nothing, I think. Give me some truth. There ain't no truth coming when I dry her off, ignore the lotion for her flailing, and shoulder past Jojo, who been cleaning off his chest at the sink and mirror, and I know, watching, like a blue jay mother, ready to dart in and peck if I do her wrong, ready to take the hits for himself if I do lose my temper and start swatting at her bottom, still clammy with water and fever. He's at that age where skinny boys either stretch and get skinnier and leaner and harder, or skinny boys get fat and spend their early teen years trying to learn how to move bodies, made bulky by hormones. Jojo is a mix of both. Fat clicks all along his, all along his belly, but avoids his chest and arms and face. With the shirt on, he still looks as lean as he did when he was younger. I can tell by the way he washes himself he's ashamed of it. They don't know like I do that in a few few years, that stomach's going to melt away layer by layer as he gets taller and more muscular, and he'll emerge, his body, an even limb machine like Michael's, tall like Pop. Make sure you get them, make sure you get in them rolls, I say. Jojo flinches like I've hit him, shies closest to the mirror. Feels good to be mean, to speak past the baby I can't hit and let that anger touch another, the one I'm never good enough for, never mama for. Just Leonie, a name wrapped around the same disappointed syllables I've heard from Mama, from Pop, even from giving my whole fucking life. I dump Michaela, the wailing bundle on the bed, and begin toweling her off, and she's still kicking and screaming and moaning and now saying Jojo, and I just want to give her one slap, or maybe two, enough to sting her good, but I don't know if I'll be able to stop St. Teresa. I won't be able to stop. Help me. I leave her trembling and walk to the door and yell at the bathroom at Jojo, who stands with his hands tucked in his armpits, his arms like football pads across his chest, and watches us. Get her dressed. Put her to sleep for a nap. Don't leave this room. I slam the door. Easy in the, it could be easy to judge her, and yet one ends up feeling sympathy for her because of the struggles of her situation. Um, can we talk a little bit about trauma? In Leonie's life, she is dealing with not just the suffering of generations of poverty, uh, the difficulty of finding work, the difficulty of looking after her family, and the general air of hopelessness that surrounds that family, but she has a specific episode that has produced trauma in her, which is the loss of her brother, Given, who is... Tell, tell us a bit about Given. So, um, Given was Leonie's older brother. Um, he was... Uh, you know, she's a few years younger than him. Uh, he played football in high school. He loved playing football. He felt a real kinship with his teammates. And um, and so he would, you know, the, the team was, you know, mixed. There were black kids on the team, white kids on the team. He hang out with them often. Um, and so he he decides um, to go hunting with them. Right? They're all going to go on this hunting trip. And he makes this bet. and says, "Oh, you know, I can. I bet you that I can, you know, kill a deer with a bow and arrow." Right? And so he makes this sort of crazy bet. And he train, you know, he practices and he trains and he goes on this hunting trip and he actually he does it, right? So he wins the bet. And one of the people, one of the, the a man that he is, you know, hunting with, who is actually Michael's cousin, um, reacts with anger, right? Because uh, Given wins this bet and he shoots him and he kills him. And 
Uh, and then because uh, Michael's father formerly like worked in law enforcement, uh, Gibbons' killer, Michael's cousin, is not held accountable for Gibbons' murder, right? And he basically lies, says it was a hunting accident, right? And uh, and so he isn't held accountable, and Gibbon is, you know, Gibbon dies. And Leone, unfortunately, um, can't, sh- she has a character, well, she has many character flaws, but one of her worst character flaws is, is that she can't sit with pain, any kind of pain, right? And she can't, she can't, um, she can't sit with loss or grief or trauma, right? She will sort of glance at it and then she, and then she runs, right? So she runs and she, you know, abuses drugs or she, you know, literally, so, you know, goes out and hangs out with her friends or she, um, you know, she sort of lashes out, right, emotionally, right? So she's not thinking about whatever is hurting her, right? And so because she can't sit with grief and in sitting with the grief, learn how to live with the grief, she's stuck and she's sort of, and she's carrying around that hurt with her. And it's, I mean, I don't think that you can, that grief is ever resolved. I think that you just learn how to live with it. And that's how you bear it and become a healthier human being when you've suffered trauma and pain like that. And because of that character flaw, we only can't do that. And so she is super dysfunctional. And yeah. And so is that the difference between, it's one of the things I was thinking reading the book and very much about this ability to handle pain and process pain in a different way rather than allowing it to destroy you but sit with it and <clears throat> become what's called a fully integrated person but to use therapy speak. But um, in, uh, is this the difference then between uh, uh, Leonie's parents and, and her and Michael is that Leonie's parents have learned to live with it, have learned to accept it as part of their lives and do understand that suffering doesn't necessarily dictate the course of your emotional life. Yes, I think so. And I think too that, you know, that part of what, um, you know, I feel like for some reason Leone doesn't realize how lucky she is. And I think that she doesn't acknowledge the sort of foundation of like love and caring and tenderness that she has in her life from, you know, that her, that foundation that her parents sort of made for her. Right. Um, I think that if she did, that perhaps she would be able to weather the world, but she, but because she doesn't realize this foundation, right. That she actually has, she can't, you know, she can't become a, a healthy human being and she can't um, learn, she can't function as, as they can. She can't grow as they can. She can't learn how to live with her grief as, as, as they She's can. She's differently disposed. And she also goes into a relationship with Michael, mm-hmm. who is no less than the cousin of the killer and, the, as you mentioned, the son of the police officer who gets the killer off. Um, and Michael's got his own trauma. You mentioned not at great lengths, but the deep water um, 
crisis. But Michael has his own uh, uh, individual violent, uh, traumatizing experience. Uh, so these two, are they put together both by given and their their experience of trauma and inability to cope with it mm, a sort of parallel yeah I mean I think so I mean because you know how they I mean in, in simple terms how they meet is that he walks up to her and he basically says oh you know my cousin's fucked up right um, so I mean that's and, and that's what so that that's how their conversation begins like in a weird way they're sort of acknowledging mm. the trauma but then they immediately both of them turn away from it, right? And they fall into this you know, this romantic relationship really, really quickly. So I do think that they they have some parallel characteristics. And then hanging over all of uh, the characters is, all of the human characters, should I say, is the character of Parchman Prison itself, where um, Pop spent some part of his life, where an awful lot of the men in this community have spent years, um, and where Michael ends up. Uh, now, I'd like to ask you a little bit about Parchment, but can we just hear um, about the first time in the book that we see Parchment? Okay. And that's page one, two, three. I love the way everyone's turning to their book. She's <laughs> going to read it. <laughs> the jail is all low, concrete buildings and barbed wire fences crisscrossing through fields. The road stretches onward out into the distance, and for a while, this road points us toward the men housed here. There's no other sign, nothing in those fields. No cows, no pigs, no chickens. There are crops coming in, baby plants, but they look small and stunted as if they'll never grow. But a great flock of birds wheels through the sky, swooping and fluttering, moving graceful as a jellyfish. I watch them as Kayla mules in my ear as we pass another sign, old and wooden, that says, Welcome to Parchment, Mississippi, and then Coke Zit. But by the time we get out of the car in the parking lot, the birds have turned north, flooded over the horizon. I hear the tail end of the chatter of all those voices calling at once, and I wish I could feel their excitement, feel the joy of the rise and the swinging into the blue, the great flight, the return home. But all I feel is a solid ball of something in my gut, heavy as the head of a hammer. I discovered Parchment as a real place. I had assumed it was a fictional uh, uh, location. <laughs> uh, and And all of these men have... This community just has this ongoing relationship with this place. You go in, you come out, you have that experience in there, which is going to read a little bit passage from that in a moment. Um, and you are changed by it in a way, and then you return to your family and try to take up your life again. But not all the men can. And I assume this is a lived reality for people in, in, the, in the Mississippi Delta, where you're from. Yes, very much so. I mean, everyone knows about parchment where I'm from as a child, I knew about Parchman. I mean, I didn't know the history of Parchman Prison. I didn't learn much of the history of the place until I actually began to do research for the book. But as a child, I knew that it was a place that I never wanted to end up. But I also knew that there was a real possibility that I could end up, th up there, especially because I was black. 
Yes, because uh, when Pop goes, he's just pulled in because he happens to be around when another crime is committed. Yes. And then there's this, you know, as a visitor to this country, it's, it's very arresting, this relationship that so much of the population has with, um, you know, with the prison services, um, which is, I don't think, parallel than any European country I can think of, where so much of a population and of a part of a population spend time in jail. Um, and I was really struck, actually, by another passage I'm going to ask you to read, where we see these parallel realities of people's lives. One group of people who have this constant relationship um, with, that, with that world, and, and, and the other to whom it is, is hidden and, and, and they are oblivious to it. Let me, where are we? Page 95. I'm, I have a specific, a, a reason I want you to read this actually, because I was in Mississippi for the first time recently, a couple of weeks ago. I think this is from Leonie. So, yeah, this is Leonie's point of view, um, <clears throat> and where the story is, is Leonie is, and her friend Misty, who is white, mm -hmm. are driving to Parchment to pick up Michael, who is due for release. And so they've taken the two kids in the, in the car, and they go for a road trip, which is a large part of the book. They go, well, not a road trip, but, you know, they, <laughs> they drive a long way to Parchment to pick up Michael, and this is en route. Where are we? I ask. I'm looking, Misty mumbles. I look for mile markers. We stopped at Carlotta and Fred's just north of Hattiesburg in North Forest County. Mendenhall. We're Mendenhall, Misty says. There's a stoplight ahead of us, so I slow. She's not looking at the atlas. How you know that? Misty points up and there's a billboard. Mendenhall, it reads, home of Mississippi's most beautiful courthouse. I want to see it. The light turns green. I step on the gas. I don't. Why not? What if it's really pretty? In the back seat, Jojo is moving his mouth around like he's chewing something. He looks away from Michaela and up to me, and his eyes dark as and his eyes dark as mine. I was smaller when I was his age, weedier, more delicate at my joints and bones. He looks like Given, but he never jokes. Sometimes when Jojo's playing with Michaela or sitting in Mama's room rubbing her hands or helping her turn over in the bed, I look at him and I see a hungry girl. I bet it has big columns and everything, probably even bigger than Beauvoir, Misty says. No, I say, and leave it at that. Michael never used to write me anything about the violence in jail, those things that happen in the dead of night and dark corners and locked rooms, the stabbings and the hangings and the overdoses and the beatings. But I told him he had to tell me. In a letter, I said, if you don't tell me what's going on, I imagine the worst. So in the next letter... He told me about somebody getting jumped in the showers, beaten purple and black. And the one after, he told me how his cellmate started messing with one of the female guards, how they snuck around and have sex in the jail, hunching like rodents, bent on procreating. And in the next letter, he told me about the guards beating an 18-year-old boy who had been convicted of kidnapping and strangling a five-year-old girl in a trailer park. They heard him screaming and then nothing, and then got word he bled to death like a pig in his cell. That, I want to say to Misty, is your pretty courthouse. But I don't say anything. I watch the world roll out before me like a big black ribbon, and I think about Michael's last letter before he told me he was coming home. This ain't no place for no man, black or white. Don't make no difference. This a place for the dead. 
I was in Mississippi um, <clears throat> the week before last. It was the first time. And I'd read Sing Unburied Sing. In fact, I finished it the day before I arrived. And I walked past a courthouse. Uh, and it completely changed my view of that very pretty courthouse in the very pretty town that I was in. Um, and I went away from Mississippi, and the very next day, I picked up the New York Times, uh, and there was a great big article about a lynching. This was because of the lynching memorial that had been opened up, opened in Alabama, and there was a big article about a lynching that had taken place in 1935, and it had taken place in the town that I was in, in Mississippi. And then I began to think about my hosts, who were very nice people, but they had lived, and they had lived in the town for generations, and they were a prominent white family. And then I began to think, gosh, the couple were quite elderly, so he was probably a, a, you know, a few years away from being born when that happened, and his parents would have been there when that happened. They would have known about it. Um, they may even have witnessed it. So, you know, this is a very recent history. It's an it's astonishingly recent history. Um, I come from a country with a violent past, Sierra Leone, um, and in a way a more recent violent past, but there is something about the violent past of America that endures. Um, can you hazard what it is? Please repeat the question. <laughs> There's something about the violence of the past in America that endures and which literature acts as a commemoration to a, perhaps you... Um, I wonder if you agree with literature acting as a commemoration to that violent past. Yes. I mean, I think that, we, that you know, part of what I'm trying to do, especially now, like as I grow and as I evolve in, as a writer that I'm trying to bring stories from that past, you know, that violent past, um, forgotten stories, forgotten voices, forgotten people, back into the light, you know, back into the conversation, back into, um, you know, the, the public, the public memory, the public's imagination, because I think that that unfortunately there is there is a real concerted effort in this country to rewrite that history to erase that history history to disavow that history to say that that history that all the that you know violence and pain and trauma that to say that none of that ever happened um and and I think that what happens when you when that becomes the predominant narrative, right? This like disavowal of of history of the past of that kind of trauma. What happens is that then, of course, it continues, right? I mean, it it uh, it, it worms its way through time and it pops up in different forms. But it's the same underlying sentiment, right? that animated the first violence, you know, um, against people of African descent. So literature becomes an act of witness. Um, so, the, so where I was reaching to with the question the first time round was um, recently, and also because of my own experience of Sierra Leone, and recently um, I read that Canada had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, to 
uh, interrogate the sins towards the uh, native Canadian population, the first Canadians. And I wonder if you think that that's something that America needs. Yes. I do. I don't know how it would ever, like, how it would, how we could ever get to a, a, a place in a space where we could actually make it happen, but I think that it's necessary. The will would need to be there. Yes, yes. And is the will there? No. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, I mean, it is quite, it is quite, it is stark to the visitor to America. Not only the absence of that reconciliation, but the absence of that will. And when I think of places like Canada, I think of places like Sierra Leone, which have done quite a lot to move past uh, these kinds of wounds, uh, the more I feel that this is something that is, it would be essential to see in America. But whether we'll see it anytime soon, I can't imagine. And so while we wait for, wait in hope for such as for that political will, artists take the place of justice. I'd like to turn to questions now. Um, we've got a good 15 minutes, so plenty of time if anyone has a question. I'm going to hand over the mic, but thank you all. Should we give Jasmine a round of applause? Thank you. Raise your hands and I'll come find you. I just want hello. I just want to know what you are currently reading. Oh, uh, what am I currently reading? Because I, um, <laughs> because I, uh, you know, I've been traveling a lot lately, right? And because I have weird expectations for, you know, what I think I can accomplish while I'm traveling, I actually picked up Moby Dick the other day. So. <laughs> Makes no sense, you know. It's, I, I mean, I, I don't know why I thought that I could read that right now. But <laughs> that's what I'm reading, um, you know, page by page. So I'll finish it in ten years. Good evening. Thank you so much for your perspective and your prose, which is so impactful. Um, one thing that strikes me about your books are the relationships between siblings. I think about Christoph and Joshua from Where the Line Bleeds, Randall and Junior from Salvage the Bones, and Jojo and Kayla from Sing Unburied Sing. And I wonder when your characters appear to you, if their siblings do as well, and how those relationships kind of bear on the relationships you have with your siblings. That's a great question. Um, sometimes they appear together, right? So Joshua and Christoph definitely appeared together, right? The twins in my first book. Um, the I discovered Skeeta. Skeeta was the first character who I discovered from Salvage the Bones, and I discovered him in a writing exercise. So actually, when he, you know, popped into my head he was actually with China, like they were already together. And then, you know, years later, as I was casting about for novel ideas, right, and that's when Esh popped into my head. And so that was a sort of a, a, a lucky um, connection 
that I made, right? So I thought, well, I really want to write about this 15-year-old girl who's growing up in a world full of men. I mean, she needs brothers. So why can't Skeeter be her brother? Um, and so that's how I began to um, to build that family in my head before I dove into the into the rough draft of Salvage the Bones. Um, you know, JoJo showed up first. I knew that he wasn't an only child from the beginning, but it took me a while to figure out who his siblings, like who his siblings would be, right? At first I thought, because I, the funny thing is I started working on Sing and Buried Sing or on a, a novel about JoJo back in like 2009, but it was a completely different novel. Pop didn't exist. His mother was, you know, JoJo's mom was white. He had like three siblings. Like I, it was a very, very different novel and it just wasn't working. And I think part of the reason it wasn't working was because I didn't have, I didn't, I didn't know his family. I didn't know his true family. And so I kept writing a bad beginning, bad beginning, bad beginning after bad beginning. And it wasn't until I figured out who his mother was and who Kayla was, you know, who Pop was. Like, it wasn't until I figured out who the, you know, who the important members of his family were that I was able to write a successful first chapter. So I guess, you know, sometimes they, the siblings come to me together. Sometimes it takes me a while to make those connections and figure out who they are. But it has to be right. There has to be some, it has to be right. Um, and it's an intuitive process for me, like finding my way towards the real family, you know, for each of my main characters. Hi, my name's Amy. I've been trying to learn more about the places of the United States and the history of how we got to where we are, and I just want to thank you for bringing a story that can teach us all a lot. Um, I recently visited the National American African American History Museum yesterday for the first time and just saw how, you know, that 1400 to present history. And I wanted to ask you um, what you thought the influence on like that transatlantic uh, slave trade was on kind of that, like you said, that 13 year old mixed race in modern self. And I'm curious about, like, did you feel like, uh, I guess, the slavery piece, like, informed the, like, underpinning of the place or the people at all? Yes. Sorry like, for no, the, no, sorry, no. this is where my brain's at, so yeah. please feel free to speak to as much or as little. Yes. You know, I read a great book when I was, actually, not, I, was, I wasn't reading the book for Sing and Buried Sing. Um, I read this book when, um, when I was doing research for my new novel, the you know, the work in progress. I don't even have a title for it yet. Um, but because I said, I think I said this, I can't remember. So I'm working on a book, you know, set in New Orleans at the height of the domestic slave trade. Okay. Yes. That's a book I'm working on right now. And I knew nothing about slavery. Right. And so I found this book called the half has never been told by Edward Baptist. And it is an amazing book and it answers all your questions <laughs> so much better than I could right here, right now on this stage. So you should definitely read it. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a very dense book, but it's very well written and it, um, it's not, it's not dry fact after dry fact after dry fact after dry fact. I mean, he, 
Baptist does an amazing, amazing job of centering people in the stories, right? Of centering enslaved people in, you know, in that history and in the stories that he, that he tells. And he also will, I think, um, you'll look at this country and this place completely different after you read that book. You will be able to clearly see how, you know, slavery and that legacy of slavery exists with us in multiple ways on multiple levels currently, you know, after. Once you read that book, there are always other books to read, you know, I may be able to come up with a with a few more sometime while I'm up here, but um, that's definitely a good place to go. It's a good start. Uh, Edward Baptist. Mm -hmm. um, hi, my name is Lee. I'm a fellow Mississippi girl myself, though I've been up here for 30 years since college. Um, first of all, I'm really proud, um, and, and I think it's great. Uh, I grew up in Mississippi as um, mixed race myself, um, even though I don't look it. Um, so um, without trying to hit a topic that's just so sensitive, like you said, I'm not sure we're at a place, um, at a time in our country where we can deal with this. But the anger that you describe in that book um, is so um, accurately described. And I feel like as part of the white culture in Mississippi that I grew up with, um, that, that's really the defining characteristic of it to me. Even looking back, it's just a very angry place. How did that impact you as a young girl there? And how did that make you stronger and able to become witness to it in your literature? You're talking about the kind of anger that maybe Big Joseph yeah. expresses. Yeah. Um, I was very familiar with that um, with that anger and that sentiment, unfortunately, because one of the reasons that I was familiar with it um, was. First of all, I heard it in multiple stories that my, my family members told me. So like my grandmother would tell me stories about how when she was a little girl, she would, my grandmother's grandmother was white. And when she was a child, um, her grandmother and her father would pack all the kids in the car and they would go to the kiln and they would visit the white part of their family. And then right before the sun would set, the, you know, the, the white sort of one of the white aunts would say, all right, well, y'all should probably be getting home now, right? It's not safe up here. And what she meant is you can't be up here after dark. You could be killed. And so they would, so my you know, my, so my grandmother's father and my grandmother's grandmother, they would sit up front. And then all the kids who looked like, you know, they looked like black kids, right? Or at least mixed race children would get in the trunk. And she was like, and my grandmother always says, oh, they called it the boot. You would hide in the boot and they would put blankets over them. And then that's how they would get back to you know, the black community that, community that we lived in. 
safely, right? So I heard stories like that, you know, many stories like that from my grandmother. I heard stories like that from my dad who would talk about, you know, the fact that like he, he, as a child in Pascochan, he couldn't go down to the public beach, couldn't play in the public parks, right? Cause all that was segregated. And he, you know, him, he, his cousins, like him and his little cousins would sort of run around Pascochan and they'd, it was a game to them, right? Cause they're kids. They really didn't understand in a way, I think how dangerous it was. And so they would run through the park, you know, and the care caretaker would come out of the, you know, the caretaker, the building that she lived in, and she'd start yelling at him, you know, calling him the N-word and telling him to get out the park and, and threat, threatening them, right? And so I heard many stories like this from different people in my family that I think taught me about, like, the existence of that anger, also the danger of that anger, um, and how, you know, and, and I guess taught me that that is something that was a characteristic of the place that I lived in and something that I might have to face one day. You know, I felt like they were preparing me. And then my mother worked as a, um, my mother worked, basically worked as a maid. She worked as a housekeeper, right, and a caretaker for several wealthy white families um, on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And one of the um, the fathers and one of the families that she worked for he offered to pay for my schooling so that I could, because back then our public schools were horrible, right? And so he offered to pay for my schooling so I could attend the same private school that his children went to, which was a great opportunity academically, right? But which also meant that I, I went to school there and I was the only black girl in the school for years, right? Most of the other kids in the school were not only not only were they white, right, but they were also wealthy, and I think that made the racism worse, right? And so I dealt with a lot of interpersonal racism while I was there, like very blatant, um, you know, threats and belittling and um, sort of co a, a constant uh, a constant undermining of any self, any confidence that I had, right? Because I was constantly told that I didn't deserve to be where I was, right? And that I was worth less than they were. Um, so I'm very familiar with that anger and that like really strong belief that so many you know, white <laughs> Southerners hold that black people are worth less. Um, and I don't know, I mean, I guess like any trauma, I, I learned how to live with it, and I yearned to escape it. And I think in some respects, it drove me from the South when as soon as I had an opportunity to leave, I left. You know, when I graduated from high school, I, I only applied to one school in the South, and that was Duke. I got a full ride. I got this fabulous, like the best scholarship that you can get to Duke. I got it, and I turned it down. I went, I visited the school and I was like, mm -mm, this is still the South. <laughs> and I turned it down and I went to California. And that's not to say that racism doesn't exist in California because it sure does. Um, but I wanted to run as far away as I could from the, I guess the, the kind of behavior that is, um, that can, that you encounter again and again in the South. 
um, where people think it's okay, white people think it's okay to, you know, to you know, treat you in really terrible ways because they believe they don't believe in your in your human in your humanity. Um, Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, just pop a question in. Do you think you would be able to write the white side of this story? <laughs> I mean, I think I was sort of dipping a toe in with Michael, um, with Jojo. I mean, not with Jojo, with Michael, with uh, Big Joseph, um, and with, you know, Michael's mother. Just a little. Um, I don't know. I mean, I imagine, you know, I, I'm not the, the most confident writer, <laughs> but I think that I, that I can, <laughs> I think that I, character is very important to me and uh, how place informs character um, is something that I'm very aware of and that I sort of strive to represent in all of my work and in all of the characters that I write about. And so, I mean, I think I could. We borrow the mic again to say, apparently we have time for two more questions. Um, thank you so much for sharing your utterly profound gifts with us. Um, I have my giant bag of your books right here, so thank you for setting limit of five. Um, I was going to ask you about your use of magical realism a bit. I, I was fascinated by that in, in this book. And if you could speak to that a little, I'd love to hear about that. But I also, just after your last um, answer, I was wondering if it was hard for you to return and teach at Tulane or be in the South again. I grew up in Louisiana, and I, I left as soon as high school um, was done. I've not been back. But there there is something that is a pull, and I think you've spoken a bit about this feeling of home and the bayou and the soil and the, even if you want to leave, you kind of go back. So I just wonder too, if instead of magical realism, you want to talk about returning in a way, what, what your thoughts are on that. Um, let's see. So I've always wanted to write something that had magical elements. Most of my work so far has been fairly realistic. And, um, yeah, so I think this was writing sing and buried sing was my, opportunity to do so. I, I remember um, after sometime like 2012, I did an event with Nikki Finney. Nikki Finney is the poet who won the uh, 2011 National Book Award in, in Poetry. And we were talking about, you know, process and, you know, uh, uh, you know, our, and, and literature. And, and she was saying, she told me that I hope she doesn't mind that I'm telling you the story, but she wakes up very, very early in the morning at like 4.30 or something, something like that. And she, and that's when she writes. And she says that the reason that she does that is because it allows her to access to, it, it's easier for her to access the magical, you know, easy to write, um, in a uh, write about magic, write magical realism at that early time of the day. Um, and then I said, yeah, I've always wanted to do that. You know, like not wake up at 4.30 and write, but, <laughs> you know, write something with a bit of magic in it. And she said, you can do that. You know, you, totally, you already do that. And um, 
And it was like she gave me permission when she told me that. And so, you know, I, I knew at the beginning of um, Singing Birds Sing that I wanted this to be a bit different, right? So from the beginning, Leone, I knew Leone was, would see phantoms. From the beginning, I knew that JoJo could communicate with animals in some respect, right? I didn't know that ghosts would be a part of that world until I was doing research and I discovered the story. I discovered that children like Richie existed. And once I discovered that children like Richie exist, existed, and you know that they were 12 and 13 year old black boys sent to parchment prison to be re-enslaved, you know, I knew I had to write about a boy like that. But because I wanted him to be a, um, because I wanted him to have agency and power and interact with the characters in the present, I had to make him into a ghost. So that's why my, I think that's why even more, there was even more of a sort of magical um, element to that book. As far as return, it goes, um, I come, you know, both sides of my family have lived in Delil and Pascashan for generations, as far back as we can count, right? Those haven't been very easy lives, but that's where we're from. Um, I have a very large family. I, if I just count my maternal grandmother's side of the family, so it's a quarter of my family, there are over 200 of us, right? So I guess you should multiply that by four, and that might. And and actually, I just looked up the uh, the population <laughs> of Zulu of my hometown. There's a there's a thousand people in it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so my family is the town, basically. Um, <laughs> but I come from a really large extended family, and I love them. You know, um, they. I love them, and. Uh, and after I lost my brother, you know, after we lost my brother, when he was 19, I was like in my early 20s, 20, 23. I, one, I, I realized that I, that there were, there was time that, that I could never get back, right? Because I'd been away from him. And I, and I had, I felt so much regret and so much like sorrow at that fact that I could never get that time back. And so I think that, you know, that that followed me throughout my adult life. You know, I spent like, I don't know, 12, 10, 12 years, you know, living in different places around the country. And, um, and finally I just got to a point where I was like, you know what, I want to go back home. You know, I want to go back home. Even though I, I did, I ran from this place and I love this place. You know, it's a beautiful place. I love, you know, just the landscape. And I love, you know, my family. I love my community. I love my people. But there's much that I hate about the place. But I thought, I'm going to see how it is to live there as an adult, right? Maybe I won't stay there forever. Um, and so that's so why I decided to return. But, I mean, it's definitely, I'm not, I'm not totally happy or resigned to living there for the rest of my life. I think right now it's the place where I need to be. Um, but you know that I mean that might change in the future. I don't know. Um, 
I think it. She, she, so she was asking me if I'm, if the reason that I, if part of the reason why I'm back home is because it helps me to write. Um, I think it, I think it, I think being, I think living at home keeps me honest and I think it lends an urgency to my work. Um, yeah, I think it, I think it keeps me honest and I think it lends an urgency to my work because, you know, I have to tell the truth about the kind of people that I'm writing about and when I'm living with them, I mean, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, so my name's Sarah, and uh, I didn't really know what I was going to read when I picked up the book, but um, I kind of want to be a public defender when I'm older, and I've been interning at Public Defender Services. And so when I realized that prison was going to be part of the story, I was really excited. And I was wondering how the characters were going to be related to it, and a lot of them were. Um, but I noticed, you know, that most of the characters were, I guess, involved with the prison ended up being, you know, innocent in some way or another. But I wanted to thank you because there was one paragraph where you described a character. Um, he's the guy who Richie ran with. Um, and I just, because, you know, you put in a little paragraph after you had to kind of describe this man who appeared to be guilty of crimes committed in the prison. I'm not sure how he got there, but you put in a paragraph while he was running that kind of humanized him. You know, he's running for his mom and he's like yelling her name. And I felt like, you know, it was that was in the book for me. I was like, oh, my God, that's the feeling. Um, and I was wondering why you put that in. Like what what inspired you? What experience inspired that? That's a good question. Um, so I don't like to write villains. Um, and I I don't like to write villains. I think if you write a villain, um, you know, then that's pretty much like a flat character. All that villain will do is inspire one, well, the strongest sentiment that will inspire in a reader is distaste, dislike. Your reader won't feel any empathy for that person at all. And human beings are always complicated. You know, you, you, human beings are always complicated. They're always complex. They're all, they always, you know, they there are multiple layers to everyone, right? And so I feel like I, even if there's just one thing that, you know, one sort of okay, you know, good thing that I can find in, a, in an awful person, then that will push them closer towards being a human being on the page. And that's what I want because I want my readers to, I don't want my readers to feel easy emotions. I want my readers to feel complex emotions to be conflicted sometimes about what they feel for my characters and and that's one of the ways that I do it you know by you know trying to make my characters as complex as I can even when they're bad people <laughs> it's approval <laughs> Stand up now, everyone can still see you. <laughs>
Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.